21, the Bible says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king uh, for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to even hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Galal. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants did, uh, said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all the household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all the servants were passing by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath, they passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you go with us? Go back, stay with the king, for you are a foreigner. And also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and I shall today make you wander about with us. I don't even know where I'm going. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all of his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king crossed the book of Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up and behold Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of the covenant until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. 
Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel, are not Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz and Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering uh, Jerusalem. Well, it's been roughly 10 years since David's sin with Bathsheba and subsequent uh, murder of Uriah. At least at this point in the story, it has been so. And during that David, uh, de- decade, David's family has gone through quite a bit of, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, drama. David's daughter was assaulted by her half-brother Amnon, who happened to be David's son, Uh, David's other son, Absalom, kills his brother Amnon, and for about half of that period of time, Absalom has lived estranged from his father David. A distance existed between them that neither one of them were very eager to resolve on account of their mutual pride and uh, bitterness, especially toward one another. However, at the end of chapter 14, as we saw last uh, Wednesday, we get a brief interaction between David and Absalom. We find Absalom bowing, David kissing. But it was more of a political greeting than it was an affectionate embrace of a father and son who we might think had forgiven one another and reconciled their relationship. In fact, it wasn't that at all. At best, what we have here is this interaction between them being something of uh, an insincere gesture. You see, the, the show of reconciliation may be on stage, but behind the curtain there is still a large distance between these two individuals. In fact, as we read and continue to read, these are extremely dark days in the life of David. Personally, it would appear that he is still guilt-ridden over his sin with Bathsheba and her husband, and it seems the whole episode has completely paralyzed him. We don't hear much from David anymore. Domestically, his home is greatly fractured and in disarray, and Politically, we find out here especially that he is quickly losing the respect of the people. And to top it all off, now as we've just read here in 2 Samuel 15, we see Absalom, his son, the now apparent heir to the throne, 
is conspiring an insurrection against his own father. And that's the title of our message tonight, a conspiracy to usurp David's throne or a conspiracy to usurp God's man. Well, let's look at several things as quickly as we, as we can, which may not be quick, but again, that's my motive. Uh, Number one, we see, first of all, Absalom's rebellion, Absalom's rebellion. Now, we we learned very quickly last week in chapter 14 that Absalom was somewhat of a narcissist. Uh, We get a little glimpse of him in verses 25 and and, uh, verse 26 of chapter 14. He was naturally, the scripture says, a handsome man uh, from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. The scripture says here that he had no blemish about him. Uh, Nobody in Israel was praised more for their beauty and looks and stud-like figure than Absalom was. And here's the problem. He knew it. He knew he was handsome. He knew he was good looking. And he knew the people loved him for it. In fact, we read last week that he flaunted that long flowing hair like few celebrities ever have. Think, if you will, Disney fans, Gaston, all right? That's who he is. He's everyone's favorite guy. And now we see here that he's doing something very intentional. A couple of things I've written down in my notes. They're not on the screen, but in case you want to just follow the text, the, the first thing I wrote down here is that he is building an image. He's building an image. Verse 1 says he got himself a, a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. I don't know why I keep getting these Disney images in my mind, but if he's Gaston in chapter 14, he's Prince Ali in chapter 15, all right? Uh, he, he's coming into Agrabah on all these uh, elephants and horses and chariots and big parades. He's, he's without doubt drawing attention to himself. Some have even noted that this is the first time chariots were even used in the streets of Jerusalem. You could do a little bit of studying and see that any time chariots were used by the enemy army, David would come in and destroy them because they were looked at as enemy chariots. Uh, technique, enemy technology. This is not what we trust in as people of God. In fact, David said, we don't trust in horses. We don't trust in chariots. We, we trust in the name of our Lord. But now Absalom, he goes and gets him a brand new chariot with uh, 50, uh, no, excuse me rather, not 50, it's 50 people going to heaven, but he's got some horsepower in this chariot. And he's riding it up and down the city's streets of Jerusalem. And what he's doing here is subtly planting a perspective in the eyes of the people. The chariot, the horses, the parade, the attention. We haven't seen David in a while. He's in the palace. It seems like there's a lot going on in his life. We don't hear from him. We don't see him. What in the world is going on with him? But now Absalom is making himself known. He's wanting the people to see him. It's almost as if he's subtly saying, hey, You could have a different style of leadership if you want it. In fact, everything he's doing is about building a brand. He's building the Absalom brand. He's bought into this idea of his celebrity status among the people. They love his hair. 
They love his looks. They love everything about him. They like his new chariot. I mean, he is building an image. That's not the only thing he's doing. He's not only building an image of himself. We see here, and I wrote down in my notes, secondly, he's creating suspicion and doubt about David. He's creating suspicion and doubt. Every morning the Bible says that Absalom would get up early and make his way to the gates of the city. The gates of the city is where people would come if they were in need of justice from the king. If they had any issues that they wanted him to solve, they would would come here early in the day in hopes that they would get a hearing from the king. We've seen this on several occasions in our study of 1st and 2nd Samuel. In fact, it was just uh, recently we see that uh, uh, this, this whole uh, uh, deal with the, the, the woman that, who came in uh, from Tekoa and got an audience with him. This is quite similar to the same thing. Uh, people would line up at the gates of the city hoping that if they, could just, if they could just talk to the king, he would settle whatever financial disputes or personal matters or uh, issues regarding work and pay and family and land. This is the kind of thing that kings would do. They didn't sit around and eat grapes all day. Uh, They were involved in the decision-making in the lives of the people. And so what we find Absalom doing is getting up very early, quite possibly before anybody else shows up, and he makes his way down to the gates of the city. And the question is, though, why is he doing this? Because it's certainly not his role. He's not been given any kind of permission by the king to fulfill any type of authoritative uh, influence or leadership on the people. Well, I tell you why he's there. He's there to create doubt in the minds of the people about the king's ability to lead them. It's a divisive tactic. Because what you see doing here, Absalom doing, is he's warming up to these people. He's out there passing out donuts and free coffee. And he's talking to them in the morning. He's asking them where they're from and uh, what kind of issue they're going to bring before the king. And, and notice what he says. Verse 3 says that Absalom would say to these individuals, see, your, your claims are good. They're right. In other words, none of this is foolishness. It, it deserves to be heard. But there is no man designated by the king to... To hear you. In other words, Absalom's saying to them, you know, it's a, it really is a shame that the king hasn't designated more people to help him. It, it, really, it really is a shame that the king hasn't designated more uh, judges to help meet all of these people's needs. You see, Absalom knows exactly what he's doing. He's fostering discontent. He's planting seeds of doubt in the minds of the people regarding the leadership that God had established for Israel. He's building an image. He's creating suspicion and doubt. I wrote down this, number three. He's establishing favor and trust. He's establishing favor and trust. Verse four, then Absalom would say to them, Oh, that I... We're judging the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause would come to me and I would give them justice. So you you follow what he's doing, right? He gets the brand new chariot with the large horsepower and the parade and he's going up and down. He's building the image. He's the prettiest guy alive. He's on the front of GQ magazine. 
Everybody knows who he is. He has reached celebrity status. And he builds on that. He builds on that. He's, he's building this image of himself. And now he's creating suspicious in the minds of the people, doubt about their leader, David, their king, the man that God has chosen. And then he works hard to establish favor and trust with them. I think we know enough about politics to understand that when you're the opposition, you can promise anything, regardless of whether or not you'll actually do it, especially if what you're promising is lacking on the other side. That's exactly what Absalom's doing. He's saying to them, hey, look, I'm on your side. And if I were in position to do something, then this is what I'd do. If I were in position to do anything about it, I'm telling you, I would side with you. I would make it happen. And with every person that comes to the gate, this is the conversation that he has. He creates suspicion and doubt by telling them the king can't see them, but if he were in leadership himself, then he'd hear them out and give them what they need. It's fascinating, isn't it? That those aspiring to positions of power rarely acknowledge that those currently in power are doing a good job, even when they really are. Instead, what they want you to feel is that they're the answer. They're the answer. And look at what he does each time he interacts with the people. Verse 5 says, whenever a man came near him to pay homage, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. You say, what's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. He's acting like a king. He's behaving like David. In fact, I, I wrote here in my notes, he's taking liberties that did not belong to him. He's putting himself in a role that he had not been given. He's not king. No, that, that belonged to somebody else. But he knew exactly what he was doing. And slowly but surely, over a period of four years doing this, he's very patient. We've seen that in his waiting for the right moment to take Amnon out. He's very patient. Over a period of four years, he's posturing, he's politicking, he's positioning himself as the answer to what the people needed. And verse 6 says, he stole their hearts. The word stole is interesting. It's the same Hebrew word that is translated tricked in other places in the Old Testament. And that's exactly what the narrator wants us to know. He wants us to know that Absalom tricked the people. He deceived them. They're thinking to themselves, hey, look at him. He's handsome. He's approachable. He's there every morning. He listens to us. He agrees with us. He's one of us. You know what? Maybe he ought to be king. And then he does what a lot of politicians will do, whether they're seeking power and position in the government or in the church. And by the way, these same similarities can be seen in the church. Absalom then plays the religious card. All of a sudden, after four years, he remembers, oh, man, I forgot. 
I made a vow to the Lord when I was living in Gesher that if the Lord brought me back to Jerusalem, I would go back to Hebron, my hometown where my family is, and I would offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and worship to the Lord. And this is the fourth dynamic of his design to usurp David's throne. Follow me. He's building an image. He's creating suspicion and doubt. He's establishing favor and trust. And now he's portraying himself to be spiritually focused. He's portraying himself to be spiritually focused. But there's nothing genuinely spiritual about this. The only reason he wants to go back to Hebron is because that's going to be his home base for this coop that he's created. It's going to be the place where the people he's won over will declare him as king. And guess what? This whole thing worked. David in verse 12 grants, or excuse me, in verse 9 grants him permission and told him to go in peace. That's fascinating. His father tells him to go in peace when in reality he's coming back for war. And verse 12 says the conspiracy, conspiracy grew strong. The people, they kept increasing. They, they wanted to be with Absalom. And to make matters worse, we find out here that David's right-hand man, Ahithophel, joined Absalom. His most trusted counselor says, I'm switching to the other side. You see, apparently for the past four years, Absalom has done all of this without arousing one ounce of David's suspicion. He's a rebel. They're where you work. They're in the government. They could be sitting here tonight. They're building their own brand. They're creating suspicion and doubt in others who lead. They're establishing favor and trust by convincing you that they would do it much better. All the while, portraying them to be spiritually in tune with God. Absalom was beautiful. He's charming. He's popular. He's clever. He's deceiving. And boy, is he ruthless. It's the same approach that all rebels use to usurp power and position of someone else. They build up an image for themselves, create suspicion and doubt about their opponent or the person that they want to dethrone. They're establishing favor and trust with those who can help them gain power. And the entire time portraying themselves to be in tune with God and His purposes. There's a New Testament warning about this, by the way. I know we're looking in the Old Testament tonight, but it all flows together as the inspired Word of God. And here's what God says about this in Titus chapter 3. As for a person who stirs up division... Warn him once and then twice, but then have nothing more to do with him. For such a person is warped. They are sinful. And he only condemns himself. Well, we see Absalom's rebellion. Secondly, write down number two, David's departure. David's departure. That's verses 13 through 18. And let me summarize it. One day a messenger, according to verse 13, comes into David and tells him that the hearts of the people have gone after Absalom. As far as we know to this point, David, David is not aware of anything that's going on. He doesn't even know Ahithophel has switched loyalties at this point. 
So the messenger comes in and says, look, all the people have aligned themselves with Absalom. And Absalom has proclaimed himself to be the king while in Hebron. Now we're not giving any insight to David's initial responses, even if there was any response at all. All we see happening next is David making plans to leave Jerusalem. Look at it there in verse 14. Then David said to all of his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The question may be, why didn't David just stand up against him? David's king, I mean, look at all of the victories that he has won up to this point in his life. And we're talking about the same guy who killed Goliath. He slew a bear and a lion with his hands. Why is he running? Why leave? Well, for one, the narrator makes it clear that the vast majority of the people are no longer with David. They're with Absalom. But secondly, David knew just how dangerous Absalom was. And I think he believed as he he seems to say here in these verses that if he stayed inside the city walls, it would not only be unsafe for the city itself, but it would also be unsafe for the innocent people who as a result of Absalom's ruthlessness would suffer. He's leaving because unlike Absalom, he was genuinely looking out for the good of the people. It was best if he just left. I've had some very dear people in my life go through strong battles in church environments. People Pastors who've experienced Absalom-like figures who rise up and do everything that Absalom's doing here. They're building the brand of themselves, making themselves look good, portraying themselves to be spiritually in tune with God, creating suspicion and doubt in the one leader, establishing favor and trust. Well, you know, if I was the pastor, if I was in leadership, if I had any position, I would do these things. And I I've watched this. I've watched this as a child of a pastor who experienced this firsthand. I remember as a kid, after watching my dad stay at a place for nearly 15 years, as long as I've been here, leave because of a few Absaloms. I didn't understand it. But the more I've grown, the more I've come to realize that in those decisions, whether it's been my father or others, that sometimes leaders have to make tough decisions to move themselves for the good of the people. Absalom only cares about himself. David's trying to keep innocent people safe. So the king left. 
all of his household with him, along with a few small contingencies of military personnel. In fact, it would appear that for David, all was being lost. He certainly hit rock bottom. And we know why. God is choosing to humble David. But God is doing this because he loves David so much. Listen to me, church. David is still the man that God chose. And even though Absalom is conducting himself in wicked behavior, God is going to use this to sharpen his man and strengthen his man and build up his man. As it is with us, sometimes it takes these seasons like David is experiencing hitting rock bottom to awaken him to a renewed sense of spiritual fervor and dependence on God. And we're going to see that happen for David in just a moment. But it's an important reminder that God has been teaching David some very painful lessons. But he has never once forsaken David. Because he doesn't forsake his chosen people. He's going to bring David back. And not just physically. He's going to bring back David into right fellowship with him spiritually. The journey is going to cause David to learn some life-changing lessons about God. At this moment, it appears that David looks defeated, overcome, and finished. But I'm telling you, he's not. He's not. It's a season. And God is using this season to bring out David better than he's ever been before. Now, write down number three, and we'll wrap it up here. The king's loyal friends. The king's loyal friends. You know, in seasons like this, we find ourselves overwhelmingly grateful for the loyalty of true friends, don't we? I mean, think how much David has lost. He has lost a lot of people, including his right-hand man and counselor, Hithophel. But But what we are given here in these closing verses is a look at three individuals who remain loyal to him. And they all teach us something. Let let me show you really quickly who they are and what they teach us. Number one, we have Ittai the Gittite. I love saying that. Ittai the Gittite. Who are you? I'm Ittai the Gittite. Well, here's Ittai the Gittite. And he teaches us the blessing of encouragement. The blessing of encouragement. He's kind of one of these Onesiphorus characters whom Paul said of in 2 Timothy that Onesiphorus often refreshed him and how he wasn't ashamed of his sufferings and trials while he was in prison. King David comes to Ittai the Gittite when he sees him there. And he says to him, why are you going with us? Why are you here? You're a foreigner. You don't have to come with me. In fact, this is not even your battle. This is not your fight. It would be best if you would save yourself and your family and all your little ones and just go back and stay with the new king. In fact, to be honest, I find this humorous. David says, I don't even have a clue where I'm going. Some people will ask me occasionally, Pastor, what's your vision for the next X amount of years? My, My vision is just to get up tomorrow morning. That's what I'm hoping to do. That's what David's honest. Look, Ittai, I love you. 
But look, your family's going to suffer. You don't have to go. I don't even know where I'm going. Go, go back. Go back. Verse 21, but Ittai answered the king and said, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king will be, whether it's death or life, there also I will be. What an encouragement. Perhaps Ittai saw in David what many had lost sight of, and that's the grace and purposes of God. He so much believed in David as God shows a man that he was willing to lay down his life for David's cause. Thank God for Ittai's. Thank God for Barnabas's and Onesiphorus's. They encourage, they refresh, they stay with us in seasons of rock bottom. There's a second individual. We see his name, Zadok. Zadok the priest. And here's what Zadok the priest shows us. He is a reminder of trusting God's providence. Zadok and the Levites came with David. They came with David. And, 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 and the scripture says here they came bearing or carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Of course, if you've been with us through this series, that should immediately cause your eyebrows to be raised. Anytime we see people going after the Ark of God and moving it without being led of the Lord is not ended up too well. Now, I think they have good intentions here. They're with their friend, David. They're loyal to him. And they want to spiritually show themselves to be behind him. So let's go with you, David, and let's bring the presence of God with us. But then David speaks up. In fact, it's here that we see his faith begins to emerge to the prominent surface of his life once again. He says to them, look, I want you to take the ark back to Jerusalem where it belongs. Take it back. If it's God's will, then he will bring me back to it. And then we see David express a sentiment that we've seen on several occasions in First and Second Samuel. Here it is in verse 26. Don't miss this. Underline it. Highlight it. Write it where you can remember it every day of your life. David says about God, let him do to me what seems good to him. Let him do to me what seems good to me. This phrase was used by Samuel. It was used by Joab. And now we see it used by David. It's a statement of true faith. True faith. Trusting ultimately in the good providence of God. Whatever that may involve in my life. Let the Lord do what seems good to him. To him. Now, what's the lesson of that? That whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, let us do all to the glory of God. But then, let us rest peacefully in God's sovereign decisions over our lives. For you see, what seems good to Him is not always the same as what seems good to us. But true faith will trust in His good providence, whatever that may involve. So Zadok shows us as a friend, a reminder to trust God's providence. And then thirdly, and here's the last friend, Hushai. Hushai, the archite. Not as fun as Ittai the Gittite, but still kind of cool. Hushai, the archite. And what he shows us is that he was an answer to David's prayers. David is crossing the Kidron Valley. He's ascending up to the Mount of Olives. In fact, he takes the walk that soon the son of David will walk. 
It's a devastating scene as there's weeping and mourning and grief over all who are with David. It was at this moment that someone tells David that Ahithophel had defected and turned to Absalom. In fact, the language used seems to indicate that Ahithophel had been in on the whole plot for a long time. And it's here that once again we see that David's faith and dependence on the Lord is being revived. Because we haven't seen David seeking the Lord in a long time. A long time. But in verse 31, he turns to God in prayer. And his prayer is simple. Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Of course, at the moment David was praying and worshiping, Hushai shows up. He's an older man, which is why David insinuated that the journey might be burdensome to him. But David saw Hushai as an answer to prayer, and he asked him if he would be willing to go back to Jerusalem and be a spy in Absalom's court. Hushai agrees, and he makes plans to pass everything he hears back to David so that David could be prepared for whatever Absalom chooses to do. You see, God has brought David down low, but here he discovers his truest companions, his renewed faith in the good providence of God, and a revived spirit of prayer as he once again learns to completely depend upon the Lord. I want to close by reading to you a psalm of David that was written at this very moment in his life. Psalm 3. In fact, my Bible, in the very header of Psalm 3, says a psalm of David when he ran from Absalom, his son. David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? I can't even count them. There's so many of them. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. In other words, God can't even help him now. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and slept. You know what that's called? That's called gospel sleep. Sleeping in the safe hands of God's providence that my own son may be arousing the entire kingdom to come and take my life. But I was able to go to bed and sleep because I'm trusting in God's good providence over my life. I woke up again. In other words, I didn't die in my sleep. I went to bed. I got up because the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You see, no matter what David has done, and David has done some terrible things, he finds forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And now his faith, once again, is being strengthened to trusting the Lord like never before. You see, that's the gospel. And David seems to be learning this. 
during this season of rock bottom. And the same is true for me and you. We will fall. And we will fail him over and over again, but he never lets us go. He brings us back to him as better children than we were before. So there's a warning for our tendencies to be like Absalom. There's a comfort for our dark days like we see in David. And there's an example for when our friends go through rock bottom. To be there. To help. To be an answer to prayer. And to remind them to keep trusting the good providence of God. Let's stand together for